Our second reading is from the Gospel according to Luke, chapter 5. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Genesaret, and he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land, and he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep and let your nets down for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing, but at your word I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. On one of those days, as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there, who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was with him to heal. And behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed, and they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst before Jesus. And when he saw their faith, he said, Man, your sins are forgiven you. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? When Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, Why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, rise and walk, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And immediately he rose up before them and picked up what he had been lying on and went home, glorifying God. And amazement seized them all, and they glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, We have seen extraordinary things today. After this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, Follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him, and Levi made him a great feast in his house, and there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. The word of the Lord. We're in week three looking at the Gospel of Luke, and the question that I want you to be asking, and why we read a lot of Scripture today, is who is Jesus? Ask that again and again, especially if you've grown up in the church. Who is Jesus? And one of the best ways to do that is to 
enter into the stories yourself, imagining yourself as the people interacting and responding to Jesus. So the first story that we had was Peter interacting with Jesus. And just put yourself in Peter's place for a minute with me, okay? So there's Peter. He's been working all night, and they didn't have like six-hour shifts. All night he's working. As a fisherman out on the Sea of Galilee, it's hard work. It's physical labor. It's morning time. The sun's up. They're finally rowing their boats back to shore, and they see Jesus and a crowd of people. They get to shore. They start cleaning the nets, and Jesus points at him, at Peter. He said, hey, can I use your boat? Now, the very first thing you and I would be thinking is, I'm exhausted. Can we stop? Can we not do any more work here? But actually, this is an honor and shame culture, and being able to help somebody or host them elevated you, especially if they were a person of high stature. So here's Jesus, a rabbi, and the entire village is out there listening to him, and Jesus needs his help. So from the beginning, Jesus is turning the tables and saying, Peter, I need you to host me in your boat. Peter's thinking, why me? Who am I? I'm basically a nobody. And he willingly rose out a little bit. One commentator said that the way that the Sea of Galilee sits up against the walls there, it enabled it to be a perfect amphitheater if you just push out to shore 50, 100 yards. Jesus preaches, he teaches. And then when he's done teaching, he says to Peter, push out a little further and let down your nets. Now, Peter had been fishing all night. He was a lifetime fisherman. In fact, that's probably all he had ever known as a career and a vocation. His father was probably a fisherman, his grandfather before that. Generations of fishermen who knew how to be on the sea, who knew how to work the Sea of Galilee, knew where to fish and when to fish. And as many people have noted, you fish at night, and there are certain places that you do it. And here comes this rabbi this minister, if you would, who says, hey, why don't you let down your nets over there? Now, most of you don't live and work in careers where random people give you advice. If you're an athlete or a coach or a politician, you get it, right? I mean, I'm just grateful to not be a professional coach because they have to take the dumbest questions from people afterwards. Why did you go for it on fourth down? Did you ever think about throwing it deep in this situation? And, you know, instead of just being smart, Alex, they actually answer, well, you know, we thought we could get the fourth down and we should have punted, I guess. They're getting advice from journalists and random people who call into radio shows. Most of you don't have to do it. So the equivalent, too, as I was thinking about this, was like this. If you had spent your career in law and you have become a partner of a law firm and you deal in major mergers and acquisitions... And you've been working for months and months on this significant merger, and it's hit stalling point in the negotiations. Back and forth, hours and hours, meeting after meeting after meeting, you've brought the two tables to the negotiating table, and you cannot seem to break through. You're working late one night preparing for the meeting the next day, and you call up to get food for your team. The Uber Eats guy comes in, he's got all the food, he's laying it out, he hears you guys complaining about the things going on tomorrow and you're not sure how you're going to break through this negotiation impasse. And the Uber Eats guy says, hey, have you thought about instead of having the meeting in this conference room, having it out here in the hallway? 
If you just have the meeting in the hallway, I'm sure it'll go just fine. Yeah, oh, great idea, thanks. Here's your tip and get out. That's the equivalent of what Jesus is doing here. Somebody who had no background. He was from landlocked Nazareth, grown up as a carpenter, and he's offering fishing advice. What Jesus is doing is approaching Peter at his point of greatest strength, what he knows best. And Jesus is saying, I know more about your expertise than you do. He's actually confronting Peter's priorities at the deepest level. Who is in control? What are you living for? Peter responds with exhaustion and frustration in verse 5. Master, we have toiled all night, which is when you fish, and we've caught nothing. Can we, just, can we just go home? But he's heard Jesus teach as well. He's reluctant, but he says, but because you said so, I will push out and let down the nets. And they let down the nets, and they're filled to such overflowing with fish that he has to beckon his partners to come out because their boat is about to sink. It's the reminder that Jesus will use even reluctant obedience With the miracle in front of him, Peter is overwhelmed. He falls down on his knees. And his response is not like the response we would necessarily think of. He says, depart from me, depart from me. I am a sinful man, O Lord. At the beginning, he says, rabbi, teacher. And now he's saying, Lord. You know, everyone who actually met Jesus reacted strongly to him. There were people who met Jesus in the Gospels and were filled with great fear and just wanted him to go away. Leave our village alone, Jesus. Others were angry at the things he was doing and saying and they wanted to kill him. And others, like Peter, fall down and worship him as Lord. No one who ever actually met Jesus met him and then went home and said, oh yeah, I met this nice guy, Jesus. He's, he's really nice. He's a good guy. You should, you should meet him. Nobody had that passive indifference. Like you meet somebody at work or at a, a neighborhood event and, oh yeah, they're, they're a nice guy, but even if you never see them again, it doesn't bother you. Nobody met Jesus and said, yeah, yeah, he's all right. They wanted to kill him, or they fell down and worshipped him. Luke is pushing on the right response here. He's pushing on something that comes up again and again, the holiness of God and the sinfulness of man, and he's laying it on Jesus' feet with Peter and Jesus interacting. And this is very much like the interaction that Isaiah has with the vision of God that he has in Isaiah chapter 6. He sees the vision of the Lord God in all of his holiness, and his response is, woe is me, I am lost, I am a man of uncleanness, because I have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. It's the right response to being in the presence of God Almighty. And I, I would say if you've never felt that way about Jesus, 
If you've never had that response of depart from me, I am sinful. First, I would say it may be the church's fault. You may have had such a sanitized version of Jesus, such a flannel graph happy version of Jesus, a version of Jesus that says everything's okay. And you've never actually met Jesus. And I'm sorry if your experience with a church, including this one, has painted such a rosy picture of Jesus that you could never imagine saying, depart from me. It may also be because you don't recognize the holy otherness of God and the sinfulness of you. Or it may be you've just never met Jesus. You've kept him at a safe distance, showing up at a church occasionally, throwing up prayers here and there, marking down Christian when you have a survey, but that's about it. Meeting Jesus has a way of getting real, real fast. When you actually meet Jesus, he gets to the real issue and the true need in your life. The paralytic found this out in the second story that we had read. So enter with me in that one as well. There's this man, and we don't know how long he's been paralyzed for, but to be a paralytic in this day and age is incredibly challenging. In that day and age, it was an impossibility. Your life was constant suffering and pain, total dependence and need on everyone else, unable to do anything for yourself. And on one particular day, this paralyzed man has some friends who come to him, and they rush in, and they say, Hey, Jesus, that that healing rabbi, the one who has healed people of leprosy and cast out demons, he's teaching down the street. We've got to get you to him. And probably there's some anticipation and excitement inside of you as they bring the, the mat that you lie on over to this house, but the house is so crowded that people are pouring out into the street, and you try to jostle your way, and your friends are trying to get, get you close to Jesus so that maybe he could heal you, and you can't get in. And then one guy who's with you has that bright idea of, well, let's go up onto the roof and break through and drop you in. Which is not a bright idea, it's a stupid idea. But in the ancient Middle East, the roofs were flat and they had these stairs usually on the outside. You go up onto the roof and it's a thatched roof that was covered in mud and clay that would harden. And these friends set you down and start digging a hole. It's possible one was down underneath saying, a little further back and to the left. That's where Jesus is standing. Get as close to him as you can. They dig through, pulling up clay, pulling up the thatch. Now, the roof wasn't this tall. It wasn't even a 12-foot ceiling. They were probably six to seven feet tall. And so they take the mat and begin to lower him down. Can you imagine the fear and anxiety inside of this man being dropped in, and yet the anticipation and the hope Could this be the day that I'll walk again? Could this be the day that I'll feel my hands again? That I'll feed myself again? That I'll hug my family again? And he lays in front of Jesus and everyone's aghast. And Jesus, of course, probably calm. He seemed to be calm. Says, man... Your sins are forgiven you. I mean, we don't know what the paralyzed man says. We know what we would be thinking. Um, 
So Jesus, about the sins, that's great and all. Um, I know you're really good at what you do. You're super good at what you do. Everybody says so. Um, but I can't move my arms and legs. I've got this issue I've come for. Isn't it kind of obvious, Jesus, what I really need? Why do many people turn to Jesus? Why do people start showing up at church? Many people show up at church or they turn to Jesus because they need help in life. Things are going poorly and they think, oh, you know, things were better when I was a kid, kind of going to Sunday school. I, I need to get some of that back. Or they show up at church because they feel like it's a part of kind of becoming a better person. They recognize, you know, part of maturing as a human, keeping religion in there is good. You, you need that. Often people come because they want something from God. And they have a transactional view of how God works. When I was a middle schooler, I had a very clear transactional view of God. Now, I believed in Jesus, but what I believed was I believed in Jesus, and if I was pretty good and I prayed and all that, that basically God would protect me against any bad things. And if I prayed for something, God should sort of answer it. You know, because God promises good things, the abundant life. So if I believe hard enough, won't he answer what I'm asking for? Many of us come to God because we want something. And we think if we just have that, that'll make things okay. So I'll go to him to get it. I think the paralyzed man had to be thinking, if I'm healed, then, then I'll be happy again. I'll never complain again. My life will be perfect. And you know, on a very real level, I think the answer is yes, he would be happy. Yes, it would be a good thing. Yes, it would make a lot of his life more enjoyable. But as with any of us, what we want is generally not enough. It's not enough. The huge catch of fish that will bring in all that money will not last. And even the healed body won't eliminate discontent and selfishness and suffering. There is nothing in this life that if you actually get it will fully satisfy you forever. There's no amount of money, no career goals that you can hit, no college you can get into, no boyfriend or girlfriend, no child being born into your life, not even health. Professor and writer Dale Keene talked about the seven-year rule. The seven-year rule is this. Think about your ideal car your ideal house, or your ideal husband. Seven years later, is it still your ideal car, your ideal house, or your ideal husband? The things we think we want that will make us happy may for a time, but they usually don't deeply. Cynthia Heimel, who used to write for The Village Voice, 
wrote a book that was a series of essays about 30 years ago in which she talked about celebrities. Here's what she wrote. Celebrities were once perfectly pleasant human beings, but now their wrath is awful. More than any of us, they wanted fame. The morning after each of them became famous, they wanted to take an overdose because that giant thing they were striving for, that fame that was going to make everything okay, that was going to make their lives bearable, that was going to provide them with personal fulfillment and happiness had happened, and nothing changed. They were still them. The disillusionment turned them howling and insufferable. Jesus says to all of us, you aren't going deep enough when you're simply praying for your career or your relationships, or your health. That even the most needed and wonderful things that are actually good things in this life are not enough. You need forgiveness, spiritual healing. You need me. The Pharisees are introduced in this story for the first time in the Gospel of Luke, and they're absolutely horrified. This is blasphemy. Who can forgive sins, they say, but God alone? Now, the Pharisees have an understanding of God because they have studied God's Word. They have been following God's ways. They are very faithful men who do the right things, who know how to get to God. They knew that if you wanted to forgive sins, you had to wait for Yom Kippur, which happened yesterday in the Jewish calendar. Yom Kippur is the highest holy day in Judaism. In the ancient world, it was even higher and holier than it is today because when the temple stood, it was the one time a year when the one time a year when the high priest went into the Holy of Holies, the place that no one was ever allowed to go in. And he would go in there to offer sacrifices. And it was the one day a year that the sins of the people would be forgiven. And it involves sacrifice. You see, to the Pharisee, they recognize that there is a place where God dwells, and there is a way to approach Him, and it must involve sacrifice, and in the end, only God can forgive sins. So what is Jesus claiming when He says, your sins are forgiven? Jesus was not afraid to make bold claims about himself. You know, the other thing that's probably going on here is that you can only forgive sins if you are the one who has been offended by the sin. I mean, think about it. You're in, you're in high school, right? And, and some jerk who's always picking fights comes up and just punches you in the face. And then your friend walks up and says, hey, jerk, don't worry, I forgive you. As the one who has been punched in the face, you say, no, 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 that's my job, and I don't want to forgive him. If you've had a spouse cheat on you, a friend can't come in and say, he's forgiven. No, only you can, right? You're the one who's been hurt. You're the one who's been sinned against. Jesus is saying to the paralytic in front of the crowds, I'm the offended party. You've sinned against me. Now, if any of us were there, we'd probably say, uh, come on, Jesus. I mean, give the guy a break. Which of the commandments did he break? 
He's paralyzed. Adultery, murder, theft, really, Jesus? But of course, Jesus is redefining sin, isn't he? He's redefining sin in relation to him. He's saying sin is rejecting me. Sin is ignoring me. Sin is coming to me just to get something. In other words, sin is living on your own terms, maintaining control of your own life, and so seeking to be your own Savior and Lord. The only terms you can come to Jesus on are His. Who does this guy think he is to forgive sins? But knowing what they were thinking in their hearts, Jesus then turns to the man and says, okay, I'll demonstrate that I can do both. He says, rise, pick up your mat, and go home. In that act of healing, he's demonstrating that he is not only the one who can forgive, but also the one that can heal. In other words, I'm not just the redeemer, I'm the creator. And I am who and what you need most. Peter realized this. Peter realized this, that he needed Jesus most when he responds to Jesus' miracle with, depart from me, Lord, for I'm a sinful man. He recognizes who Jesus is and his place in front of Jesus. Depart from me, I'm a sinful man. But of course, Jesus goes deeper still. He says, from now on, you will be catching men. I am going to redefine your vocation and calling and identity. You thought of yourself as this, but I say you are that, and that is who you will be now. And they left everything, verse 11, and followed him. You know, stories like these in the Gospel of Luke and any of the others that we're going to be reading over the coming weeks beg us to ask the question, for whom did Jesus come? For whom did Jesus come? And another way to put it is, who actually responds to Jesus? Who ends up following him? Who are the ones who get it when it comes to Jesus? Well, just from our stories today, we see that an average guy is the sort of person who follows. Peter was an average guy. An average guy who, if you read the rest of the gospel, is really an idiot, which gives us great hope. Average idiots follow Jesus. The poor and the suffering respond to Jesus. The poor and the suffering like this paralytic. And tax collectors, sinners, respond to Jesus. But the religious the good, the educated, and the successful, that's all of us, they don't get him. They don't understand what he's doing, or they're deeply offended by him. Imagine being Levi now as the third one, sitting in his tax booth in Capernaum. There he is as a hated and reviled man who requires people to pay as he goes by. And he sees Jesus, this rabbi who Buzz has been coming around about, with a crowd of people coming towards him. And if I'm Levi, I'm getting my defenses up. A little bit fearful, ready to fight. Why? Because I know when rabbis come, they come to preach a sermon at me. 
They come to accuse me. And you know what? They're right. I've turned against my people in order to follow money. And I've extorted, and I've swindled, and I've lied. But I'm going to fight this guy when he comes. I'm going to tell him off. And then Jesus turns to him and says, follow me. Yeah, yeah, you follow me. You can imagine he's completely undone by this. This is not the sort of thing any rabbi would ever say to him. That later that day or some other time, he throws a great feast, it says, with his fellow tax collectors and others, and Jesus comes to the great feast. Now, in order to understand the significance of him throwing a feast and Jesus coming, you have to recognize what a tax collector is. Now, you've heard sermons about the tax collector, right? But you actually have to jump to the modern day and think of what is the equivalent of the sort of person that we despise, that is not like us, that if we could get rid of them out of society, we would. That's how they viewed a tax collector. So an equivalent might be a drug dealer or a sex trafficker. An equivalent might be a homegrown terrorist, somebody who has pledged allegiance to ISIS even though they've grown up here in America. Or it would be a Klansman, a racist KKK leader. The equivalent of what Jesus is doing is going back to Charlottesville six weeks ago and walking into this crowd of people and seeing the leader of the racist Klansmen and saying, you, I want you, come follow me. And then later on that day, that Klansman throws a party with all of his fellow friends and Jesus attends. If I went to a party thrown by the Klansmen in Charlottesville, I would not have a job for very long. Any minister who showed up at that party would be identified as a racist and destroyed on social media and in their church. Now do you get the problem with Jesus eating with tax collectors? The Pharisees get it. Jesus, what are you doing? These are tax collectors and sinners. Are you one of them? And the question is, for each of us, could we ever be accused of this by religious people? You're eating with sinful people. You're hanging out with people who don't believe in God. You're hanging out with the sort of people who reject God. What are you doing? And for those of us who find it very easy to hang out with people outside of the church, the question is, have you ever invited Jesus to the party too? Jesus responds to them, those who are well don't need a doctor, but those who are sick. I've not come to call the righteous, the good, the religious, but sinners to repentance. Jesus came for sinners, which means if you want Jesus, you need to admit that you're sick.
I heard a preacher citing another preacher using this reference, saying, churches, unfortunately, are less like a waiting room at a hospital and too much like a waiting room at a job interview. We look a lot more like people going to a job interview than like those who are sitting in the ER. We enter with our family all together, successful, smiling, happy. I know it's a facade, but you put it on when you come on a Sunday morning, right? You have to, like, come on, we're all happy, we look good. This is how our family always walks, right? <laughs> you're ready to kill your spouse, your children are ready to kill you, you're ready to kill them. But we enter, smile, look good. Everybody wants to be here. Yay! No wonder the struggling and the skeptical don't want to show up at a church. They're not ready for the job interview, and they know it. They're looking for a hospital. Jesus rips off facades. He overturns who's in and how they get in. He's opening the doors wide to the messed up and the broken and the sinful. Jesus is saying, you can come. Not you religious people who think you're good enough, but like you can come. Yeah, you back there. And and yeah, you can come too. And, and you in the back corner, yeah, you can come too. Yeah, even you can come. He's opening it wide, changing how you get in. You can come too. All you need to do is drop everything and follow me. Peter, James, John, and Levi left everything. They left everything. They left everything everything. So what did they take? They left everything and followed him. They left their career, their family, the villages they'd lived in their whole life, everything they had built their identity, their hope, their future on. They left it all. They abandoned everything for Jesus to find everything in Jesus. Now, it may not look like it did with Peter when it comes to you. You may not actually have to leave your tax booth like Levi did. But it will cost you. And if losing your career or your family or your friends is not a possibility, then you may not actually be following Jesus. He becomes your primary concern, your main pursuit. He's in charge, not you. It's his career, it's his kids, his money, his body, his marriage. Because to follow Jesus means you are his. But it also means 
He is yours. And if you lose everything, but you have Jesus, you have what you truly need. And that is enough. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we follow so many things. Our hearts compete and are pursuing everything we possibly can to find happiness, to make our life better, to manage things. May we have a heart willing to follow none but thee, to turn to you and say, Jesus, all that I am and all that I have, I give to you. Give us hearts that are soft and willing to follow only you, Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.